Oh, hello, and welcome to the Community Experience Podcast. We are so glad you're here. If you're one of our regulars, you're probably wondering why we haven't published in a while. We actually chose to sunset the show in early 2023, but the feed will stay active because so many of the episodes are timeless. If you want to learn more and search our back catalog, you can visit smartpassiveincome.com slash cxpodcast, all one word. Hey everyone, Jillian here. Just a heads up, this episode contains some explicit language and may not be appropriate for younger audiences. The analytics you get with most platforms isn't great. We pull data from the API directly so we get exactly all the data we need. Then we start figuring out what kinds of behaviors lead to people engaging more. So if you took a sample of members, you see what discussions they engage in, what activities they participated in, compare that to the people who didn't stick around for a long time, you know exactly what to guide the next member to. So when we have like case studies where we've tripled level of engagement or retention, that's how we do it. Not by the guesswork or the intuition of the digital dark ages from before, by having this enlightened data-driven approach. Well, hello, and welcome to this episode of the Community Experience Podcast. I'm Jillian Benbow here to bring you amazing guests and talk all things community. And this week, I am talking to the one, the only Richard Millington, who has been in the community space for longer than I have, and is the first actual book I ever read on community building was his book buzzing communities. So I've known his name for forever. He's also the founder of Feverbee, and they do all sorts of community research and notably help kind of more enterprise communities, I would say, for the most part, establish like what is their community, kind of help set them up, you know, small names in the biz you've probably never heard of like Apple and my favorite thing, Facebook and lots of big kind of sass, sassy type organizations. So Richard comes from a different perspective than who I often talk about because Richard is primarily focused on these larger communities that are often free or often customer support adjacent. Obviously, Apple, we talk about the Apple support community because I love it. And it's my go-to example of a fantastic customer support community. So enough about me recapping what we talk about. Let's get into it. I think you're going to love this episode because Richard is just like a really interesting person. His perspective on community is great and he definitely walks the walk. So let's go at it. Welcome to this episode of the Community Experience Podcast. I say this every week, but for reals, I'm so excited because we have one of the OGs in digital community, building strategy, all of the things. One of his books is the first one I ever read when long time ago, a decade ago, I was, you know, trying to up my community manager game. Richard Millington, founder of Feverbee and author of many books. Welcome to the show. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for having me on the show. I don't think I'd describe myself as an OG, but I appreciate it nonetheless. Funny story. 
So I knew your name from just community, read the book. And it wasn't until much later that I actually saw a photo of you. I <laughs> I assumed based on your presence and the things you were doing that you were like a 60-year-old professor. <laughs> and no, I think you're younger than I am, much younger. So yeah, your your reputation, I like you are legit. <laughs> I mean, I'm how old am I now? I'm 37, right? So Aww. is is that young? I feel old now. Hey, compared to me, yes. The interesting thing is to be like, I wrote Buzzing Communities, the first book, uh, like, when was that? 2012? So like 10 years ago now, it's around this time that it was released. And it's funny when people come up to me and say, hey, I love the book. And honestly, when I read through it, there are parts of it where I just like, I kind of cringe. Like, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I was so naive and innocent back then. And we lived in such a simpler and calmer and more sane world. And I was talking to someone about this and they said, you know, it's okay if you look back at what you wrote 10 years ago and cringe. It's more worrying if, if you don't. Yeah, if you're like, that is excellent advice. And that has <laughs> stayed with me. That has really stayed, stayed with me all these years. So hopefully I've grown a lot since then. But I, I think some people still get value from the book. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely proud of, you know, how well the book's done. So, yeah, thank you for that. And I appreciate you saying your kind comments. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, it's funny, too, the, the cringe. I had a blog back when blogging was, a th like, cool if it ever was i don't know but like a personal blog not like what we think of blogs today and it was about running because i had gotten into running and my goal was to run a marathon and uh <laughs> i forgot all about it and one of my friends recently brought it up but it reminded me about that blog and i went and looked up like a post from it and was just immediately like burn it down nope like i'm so glad this is off the internet right this is off the internet no one can find this ever <laughs> it's so cringe <laughs> i don't know if live journal was like a big site in the usa you're from so at like university i kept this like live journal account of just like all the you know havoc we were getting up to and all those kind of things and then i lost access to the account and live <laughs> journal wouldn't give it back to me and for years, this is sitting there like, you know, it's kind of like almost like a ticking time bomb. And I had to wait for LiveJournal to die for that to disappear <laughs> off the web. But, you know, patience is a virtue and now it's gone. There you go. Like nothing's ever really gone from the internet, but at least it's like <laughs> Google can't search it and put it like, exactly. oh, this name, let's put this on the first page. <laughs> exactly. Well, RIP, cheers to all of our personal blogs of the early aughts that thankfully have all gone the way of MySpace. <laughs> also glad that went away. Yeah, for sure. Well, believe it or not, we're not just here to talk about reminiscing, but I think it is, it, it's a great thing to point out like 2012 online communities versus today, it's a different world. And 10 years from now, I think further, even with, especially with like web three and just all the things happening once again, it'll be, you know, we'll do this again in 10 years and be like, can you believe the stuff we said? Can I jump in and make a prediction here? Yes, do it. This whole web three thing. I don't know where you're at. We haven't really spoken before this call. I think it's a total waste of time. Like, I think, like I say this, I've done research of people that participate in communities for over a decade. I mean, hundreds of interviews, maybe a million survey results, and not one person in all this time has ever said, you know, what I really want is a decentralized database that hosts this community. Like, no one has ever said that. And Honestly, I just think it's a bit of a red herring. I feel like it's going to get a lot of hype. I feel like we're going to look back at it and think, oh, yeah, remember that time when people were buying like digital pictures of monkeys for, you know, 
a year's salary. That was weird, you know? Like the way we look back at the 80s today, perhaps. Like, I feel like that's what we're going to be thinking about in 10 years' time. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. No, it was a very juicy interruption. And I got to be honest, I agree. I have not wrapped my head around it. I will never buy a digital outfit. Said it here first. If I have to eat crow on that, cool. But like, no, I'd rather have a IRL outfit. I don't get it. Like, I just, it makes me feel old. And like, I just, I don't get it. And I don't care to. <laughs> kind of like my parents with rap, you know, like, it's just not, it's just not happening for me. And that's just, yeah. And to the people who are into it, like, that's cool. But diversify your investment. Do your thing. <laughs> Yeah, you do you everyone if that's if that's what brings you joy. I like the idea of potentially giving artists a new way to expose their craft and what they do. I like that side of it a lot, but it's just not my wheelhouse. So I just I'm not involved. <laughs> I'm gonna sit this one out. I think it's got some really exciting use cases in a very narrow range of fields. And I think artists and royalties are really interesting. I think, you know, secure databases. Oh, I mean, all that kind of stuff seems kind of interesting. I won't pretend to be an expert. But when it comes to like the broader community industry and people are like these DAOs where everyone's going to get together and vote on organizations, I'm like, that sounds like chaos. I mean, that absolutely sounds like chaos. And I'm not sure we want that. I think there's something to be said for good leadership in an organization, in a community. And if you get everyone voting on every issue, I think that's the reason why most countries have representatives that we vote to represent us rather than having that you know, direct democracy on every issue. And I think communities are going to be the same. I think when a community is well run, you have a leader that really cares, a leader that can balance the competing interests of the majority against the minority, a leader that can understand where the community needs to go. And the interesting thing here is like, you know, like I said before, we've done a lot of research and there's so many times when we do research on a client's online community and they will come back and say, oh, we want the community to go back to the way it used to be, you know, to some like before time. And it's not possible. Like maybe the technology was old, it was out of date, like the budgets have changed, all these kind of things have changed, but that's what members want. And I wonder what happens when you let people vote. You know, it's like if a musician with an audience let their audience vote what kind of music they wanted to play at each concert. They'd be like, play your greatest hits like every single time and they'd never produce anything new ever. And so I think for a community to reach its potential, you need a leader that can see that potential and navigate in that direction. And so I think it's an interesting experiment. Like I think DAOs are an interesting experiment, you know, like communism, you know, um, but I'm not sure um, how well it's going to go. Yeah, it's interesting. As you're talking, I'm like, if I had to be a president, like, who am I? Am I authoritarian or am I a dictator or am I like cool? And depending my answer on who those people are, depending who's listening, they'll have different, <laughs> we all have our opinions. On Your three options were authoritarian, dictator, or cool. Those yeah. are the three options. <laughs> That's it. I'm going to go with Man, the state dictator. of politics in the USA. <laughs> I mean, wow. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we need beers for this conversation. I'm curious so just just jumping back to like the state of community and like 10 years ago from to now and even like in buzzing communities like the advice or the things you talked about then versus now what do you think the biggest change is there's a professional class of community manager that has emerged kind of like what we were talking about just before this where 
You've got people that are managing small communities for small businesses, their passions, their hobbies, you know, people with a Shopify-based business and a community they're building around that, which is fantastic. And I think buzzing communities is actually like, or in my opinion, might help, you know, some of them achieve their goals. But I think the biggest change I'm seeing is that there's this professional group of community managers that have evolved that work at, you know, the top companies in the world. And I think they're very much focused on proving the ROI of those communities, integrating it deeply within the business. And I think there's a whole new set of tools and platforms and technologies that have emerged around that. I think member behaviors have shifted a lot as well. I think social media has, for better or worse, completely changed how people engage with communities today. And it's kind of ironic, like I follow a lot of people on Twitter in this space. And There's a lot of people that are tweeting, you know, don't build your community on social media, use a forum, use a hosted platform where you have control. And and that's great, but they're tweeting that, you know, they're not pulling that in a branded online community, they're pulling it on Twitter. And a lot of the discussions I see in this space are on Twitter, they're on Facebook, they're on social media channels. And I think the hardest thing today is getting people to go to a dedicated platform that you control There's a lot of benefits in there for you, but it's so much more difficult. And I think a lot of people that are advising not to use social media seem to spend a lot of time on social media advising that. And there's a reason for that, because on social media, you can grow your audience, you can grow a profile. You might tweet something that might reach a million people if it goes viral in some particular way. And so I think the challenge is what's a unique benefit? of a hosted community, if that's your approach. And I'm talking about any sort of dedicated place. That can be a Facebook group, although there's some differences there, but any dedicated place. What's the unique benefit that a member can get from sharing advice, content, asking questions there, compared with any other channel? And I think that's a question that everyone has to answer, from the biggest brands to the smallest businesses in the world today. I think that's a question that you have to answer if you want to build that kind of community. And there's many models for building a community. We just talked about one specific one. You can build a community where people just feel a part of it. Like I engage with, you know, a lot of great people in the community building space. I wouldn't say we have a dedicated place for it, ironically, perhaps. But, you know, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we meet at events. It's still a community, but it's not like this is a designated place. It's more of a broader feeling. And so I think finding the right model and finding the right purpose is the biggest change because social media has changed so much. And it's easy to launch a community and end up with a ghost town if you're not careful. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are in that boat right now where it's like, oh, you know, and even if there was some momentum, especially during the pandemic when everyone was stuck at home anyways, now they're they're competing with the outdoors and travel and all the things that we didn't have available to us for a while. And people are like, I do not want to spend another minute staring at a device. I want to go travel. I want to see family, you know, and it's interesting this like kind of pendulum swing of access and competition. I completely think that if you run a paid community, it should not be on a social media platform. So I'd be remiss not to not to discuss this a little further because I'm always saying it and you have a slightly different take than me. So I think it's it's interesting. But I agree with what you're saying is like we all use social media to find our audience. Right. And then the I think the puzzle piece is the converting audience into community members like those are two different groups. Right. So how do you 
how do you talk about it and get people to engage and then get them to take the next step of like, okay, so now we're going to go off Twitter where we connected and bonded. And I'm going to have you come onto this platform where you have to have a login and maybe there's an app, maybe there isn't, you know, and it's like a whole different place. I'm curious your thoughts on like, just how to do that? Like, have you seen success for people or are you just like not worth it? Like what, what's the trends you're seeing? Well, let's talk about paid communities for a second. You know, a community, I just want to make sure we share the same definition where you pay for membership for that community. And that's a very unique use case. There's communities for hobbies where people don't pay, it's just there for them. But when people are paying for a community, it creates a very unique dynamic. The problem that I see over and over again with these paid communities is that they become more like a magazine subscription where there's a lot of content that gets shared there and the people running them are often a little bit insecure. So they try to cram as much content as possible and then they end up with the Netflix issue where you're like, oh, there's a lot of junk here to find the stuff I want and it becomes a detrimental impact. And I think if you're having a paid community, you have to think about what is that pay barrier? What is the incredible value that that paid barrier puts up that these people can't get from anywhere else? Because you could talk to people on social media if you want, you know, like, and so the paid barrier might be, it might be a privacy one. That's perfectly fine, but just be aware that anyone can create like a Facebook group. It might be that there's a particular need where you just want the top people in the industry to engage with each other. That's an interesting model. I like what socialmedia.org do. Um, they have like a really fantastic model for that. But then you've got to be promoting the exclusivity of it. And the challenge there is that it can't be exclusive if you're letting everyone in, you know, and you can't have the best of both worlds. So if it's paid, you have to think about what is the unique value from that community that people can't get from anywhere else. And content is okay, but just be aware if content is what you're relying upon, it's a magazine subscription with a community attached and not a community in itself. And so I think when these paid communities work really well, it's when they build on regular events and activities for people to engage in. It's when they filter and curate the best content that's out there today, not try and push as much content into the channel as possible so people feel like they're getting a lot, but try and save people time, save people money, make it more convenient because it's a digested source of top information. And when they get like access to the top people and brands that are out there, like if the top people in some industry are participating in one community, I want to be in that community too. So you have to build this unique dynamic that's so powerful and gets people really excited and engaged. And I think the challenge is a lot of people think they have it and maybe they don't. But audience research is your savior here. You know, the more research you do, and I mean genuine research, the more you're going to figure out exactly what members do and don't want. And even asking questions, you know, what are the issues that you want to resolve? How often do you have that issue today? Where do you go to resolve that issue? Why do you go there? Answering those four questions alone will get you so much further down the line of what you should be creating and building here. It'll get you a concept which is going to explode to life rather than when it's going to stagnate and just kind of like, yeah, not go anywhere. I love that. Just plus one to everything. It's so true. And I, I work with a lot of people who are either launching or have paid communities and that's their their business, right? They have a, some sort of subscription model. People get something out of it, like you were saying, you know, like there's something unique that they get, uh, the members get out of it that makes the payment valuable, hopefully, you know, and then some. A common sort of impulse for especially newer community builders is to just 
over deliver with like lots of events and content, like you said, and all of these things. And then they quickly get into this unsustainable model that they cannot scale because they're already at a max. They're already, you know, they're spending all their time in the business doing events, talking to people, and they realize, oh my gosh, I don't have time to do anything else and I need time. And often they're financially in a place where they're, they need the revenue that they're getting just to keep the doors open so they can't afford to hire help. And, you know, it's this whole thing. And so I'm always reminding people to just like, you know, calm down. <laughs> this isn't the you show. You, you're creating an environment where people want to connect with each other. And then you can have signature programming and events, but it's not on you to be every day giving like a thesis on whatever the topic of the community is. But it's hard. I think people get nervous and that they're not providing enough value, you know? So it's nice to hear someone else in the biz kind of reiterate the things I say. <laughs> See, I know what I'm talking about, everyone. Told you. I think the important thing there is quality. Yes. I know paid memberships where they do two big events a year. And that's it. That's the only thing that they do. And the model works because the events are so good and they bring all the right people together and they're well facilitated and it works. And so if they can get away with that, and we talk, we'll talk about like sites that charge maybe 10 grand a year for membership, they target a very high audience. That's an extreme example. And I think every time you put out something that doesn't get a lot of attention, doesn't resonate, you're doing more harm than good. And the way to improve a lot of communities isn't to continually adding stuff but to remove stuff as well. So when people go there, it's a prioritized list of like all the things they want. So I'll give you an example. We were working with one client that had a paid membership site maybe two months ago. And we looked at the questions that were coming in. And a lot of, a lot of the questions were like recommendations. Does anyone know what company can help me with this? Does anyone know how to set up the configuration for this, et cetera, et cetera. And when you get a lot of questions like this, you're like, oh, let's just have a recommended vendor list. You know, everyone can leave their reviews on it and suddenly you've got something that delivers unique value that people can't get from anywhere else. We had people that were trying to recruit others in the industry. Okay, well, there's a job board that makes sense for that. And so you can slowly tackle each need, adding something high value. But when we do one of these things like a vendor list or review section or classified section or anything, we keep it updated. So instead of adding a new content, new article, new article, new article, it's often better to go to stuff that's already quite popular and improve that because that's what people are going to come back to again and again and again. So you don't need to have an overwhelming amount of content for a community to thrive. What you do need is to make it easier, more convenient for your audience to achieve their goals. And really, I mean, I've said it again, you've said it, Quantity of content is not what people care about. Quality is always. Always, always, for sure. Do you think there's a, a difference? So we, we kind of focused on paid communities, but then the flip side is unpaid communities, which again, can run the gamut. I mean, these can be anything from, I like to use Apple's support community as an example, because it's, you know, there are, Apple staff in there, but there's just a lot of like Apple enthusiasts and, you know, it's free. If I have a problem with my magic mouse, I know I can get the answer. It's probably already been asked and answered, but if not, I can create a post, you know, so an example of that's like a, a really big, right. Free community versus maybe somebody, a person starts and it often starts on Facebook. I know this, especially for free, you know, a group about a, maybe it's like a parent support group or, uh, you know, a hobby, like you're saying, how do you feel as, as someone who leads a free group, 
whether it's part of their job or just a, a passion? Like, do you think it's a similar sort of expectation? I mean, obviously, I think quality over quantity should always be <laughs> the go-to, but is there any nuance between paid and free? Yes, but I think we need to separate things a bit further here. Because I think a paid membership site or paid community where you're paying for access, that's when high quality convenience, I think that kind of thing is key. Exclusivity is key. Finding that reason, I think is key. I think for customer support, communities like Apple, one of our past clients actually, but like Apple, they are fantastic at being a place where people go, they ask questions, they get an answer. And then usually they leave and they don't come back until there's another question. And there's often a debate about whether these are really communities or not. I don't care really, but I think it's important to recognize that the dynamics of these communities are always about people with questions needing a place to get answers. I think that's like, it's critical that that dynamic is understood. And then we're talking about those sites that are public, but not dedicated to customer support or not even dedicated to support questions. You know, we have say Mumsnet here, here in the UK, where mums can engage w with each other. You know, I'm sure there's sites for dads and other, you know, and others as well, but places where people can go to talk about the topic, ask questions. And then it's more about that sense of feeling that you have with each other. Sure, you might ask questions and you get advice, but it might also be a place you go to and be like, I'm having a tough day. You know, my kid spent all night whacking me on the head with a shoe. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like the kind of place where like you can just let rip with, you know, and people are going to be like, yeah, I've had a tough day. You know, like, and there's an incredible value in that. And that emotional support value is very different from other kinds of value. When we think about values of community, we think about the core thing that people get when they participate. And a sense of belonging is one, but it's not the only one. You know, support is also important. Exploration is also important. You can explore a topic with one another. Communities about running, for example, often about that, you know, exploring different trails and paths and techniques and all those kind of things. And then having a sense of influence. People can get together and change things in the world by working together. And those four things seem to be the main value drivers of a community. And the challenge is really to figure out which of them you're doing, because there's such a big difference between a paid membership site and a customer support site or question-driven site. And then those other sites where people are just feel like, this is where I belong. You know, this is where I can talk about what's driving me nuts today. You know, this is where I can chat. Yeah, I think personally, my favorite communities and the ones I love, I've done some consulting for a few and just love to help are the peer support communities that are specific to either a behavioral health thing or a life stage. So like caregivers in general, but like caregivers of family members with Alzheimer's as just like a, a niche example, like those types of communities are where I've seen the most magical support and just camaraderie and a sense of like, I see you and you see me that I think is so special. It's a nice reminder of humanity in a way. And it's a nice reminder that technology used for good can be so amazing and like getting rid of geographical barriers and, and getting people together who can really really support each other on a level that we wish we could, but we just don't have that life experience. Anyways, rambling, but those are 100% my favorite, favorite communities to help and support. I'm an optimist still. Like I think communities have been through the ringer over the last couple of years because I think it's easier to report the negatives than the positives. You know, I really believe that. 
And I still engage and get so much value from so many communities today. And almost everyone does. Almost everyone I know is part of like at least friendship groups on WhatsApp, you know, and those are incredible communities, but no one talks about it. It's not going to be like an exciting media story compared to what, you know, this group of right-wing gamer crowd did. Like that's always going to get more attention. And I don't want to change our attitudes, our minds, just because we don't like the way that term community is being used because no one gets to decide what that term is or what it means. I mean, it's it's up to us to define it. It's up to us to own that. And I think we're pretty good at that. And I don't want to change the language. I don't want to change the terms. And I still want to be optimistic because, you know, I, I just see people getting so much value from communities every single day. And I think it's so exciting to see how this industry is going. And there's issues for sure. There's issues everywhere and we can't overlook that. But overall, I think the positives so far outweigh the negatives. I just wish we could find a way of getting that message through a lot better than what we do today. Yeah. Uh, well, and to be to be clear, I think there are way more like positive communities and interactions out there than awful. I know just with my own experience working with, you know, digital communities, something that makes me really happy and no one can ever take this away from us is that if you're a closeted gay kid growing up in very con- deep conservative rural area, it used to be an incredibly lonely experience. And I think it's, you know, I'm not going to discount that it's probably, it still is, but, but now you have an outlet in your hand to connect with mentors, with other kids going through the same thing that maybe don't live in your area, but now you can talk to someone and share experiences and the positive mental health impacts of casting that larger support network, especially to teens, but to, to everyone, to adults, we're all lonely in our, in our own ways. And so giving people that opportunity, I think is just like one of the best things to come out of digital communities and, and this technology. It's really special to me. I, I hold it dearly and, you know, things can get tough in community. It's a messy job. It's a messy thing because you're dealing with people and people are messy inherently. I think we're in this middle period of where the regulatory guardrails concerning how you have like people being able to speak freely within a group, but actually not being a place where people are subject to hate and and finding the balance there. I think there's a very loud and very noisy debate that has to happen. I wish it was happening in a nicer way, but it's a debate that has to happen. And I think we're in that middle period where like soon we're going to have some regulations there that provide a little more balance I don't know whether we want that, but I think it's going to happen. And I think after that, it will take a lot of the issues that we have today, not completely out of our hands, but we'll provide some guardrails that we can work with. I think we're getting there. It's it's a slow process, but I think we're getting there. What do you mean by regulation? Do you mean like actual like government authorities saying like you can talk about this, but not that or like elaborate on what where you think it's going? I think there's laws proposed in like the UK and Europe that are beginning to define what the barrier is here. Is this for like hate speech? Yeah. So, you know, like um, Section 230, like in the USA. All right. So basically a, a crude way of saying it is that it lets people say almost anything they want online and platforms like Facebook don't get the blame. And so it limits how much they uh, have to moderate and they still do a lot of of moderation and but no liability fund fundamentally 
And there's a pro and con of that. Like the pro is that that law that protects Facebook and big tech also protects you and me. You know, if someone says something bad in our communities and we're not sharp enough on it, should we be held responsible for that? That's kind of the challenge. I think what we're seeing now in response to everything that's been happening in the last couple of years is that this doesn't make sense anymore. Like this law, it was like 1997, 96. I mean, it's so far before everything, you know? And the idea that- Even before our blogs. (laughs) Yeah, like even before the blog. So I think what we're going to see is regulation in this space. And I think that's going to be ferocious. Like it's an absolutely ferocious debate. But I think we can agree on some guardrails. You know, like if you threaten to kill someone, you know, there's got to be stronger protections than there's today. I know it's illegal already today, but like it becomes, there's nuances in that and there's all kinds of issues. And I think what we're seeing is laws in the UK where they're like trying to define, I don't like the way they're written at the moment, but they're trying to define like what is and isn't allowed and who do these laws apply to where big technology firms are subject to unique laws that maybe smaller companies aren't. And I think, that's where we're going. And the USA, I figure, is going to go the same way eventually. You folks have a very different concept of free speech than what we do. So there's going to be differences there. But that's cultural. And there's, you know, there's pros and cons of that too. Yeah. Actually, a previous episode, I had a a lawyer come on to talk about legal liabilities of community. Wesley. Yeah, with Wesley Henderson. So anybody listening, if you haven't listened to it, go listen, because we talk about what the First Amendment really means. And we also talk about just the liabilities of keeping a small community going, protecting yourself, but protecting the community. You know, obviously you have terms of service and community guidelines. It's sort of up to you and your community to say, hey, this is what's cool and what's not cool. And people need to agree to it. So I feel like that's how we've been doing it. At least, you know, small potatoes people. That's how we've all been doing it. Although, frankly, even big tech companies I've worked for, similar. They just have more dedicated terms of service. But it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I think that's the right way of doing it. But even within that, like, I mean, it's your domain, so you get to set the rules. I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, there's reason, there's a limit to that as well. But I also think if you are setting the rules, there's so many gray areas in what you allow and what you don't. You know, like, is swearing allowed? I know some people that will say yes, and some will be like, No. And to them, it's the answer is really obvious. You know, like if you allow pseudonyms within the community, what's your limit on that? You know, if you have like, you know, Jackhammer69 as a pseudonym, is that allowed? I mean, (laughs) but here's the thing, right? If it's not allowed, that's fine. I, I support that. But how do you define that? Like what is and isn't allowed, you know? And then you, it gets into this weeds where the bigger you get, the more problematic it becomes. And you know, is political debates allowed? And if you allow it, why not religious debates? And like, yeah, where does it end? At some point, like, yeah, you've got to draw the lines and people have to be on board with that. And the bigger you get, like the more problematic it becomes because at a certain point, people just want to fight, you know, they just want to be like, you are against me because of this. And you've got to figure out where the lines are. So yeah, I think it's going to be a challenge. People like to get loud too. It really is. And this actually brings up something that I have been noticing and kind of talking about more and more. Like, I think there's something here that I want to explore more in general, which is what I'm calling digital etiquette. And it's really interesting because how do you tell someone like, hey, you just don't get it, you know, like short of calling them a boomer or, you know, (laughs) just like, how do you, how do you teach people how to behave in the appropriate way without them feeling just completely 
bullied and like picked on for just being themselves. You know, it's a, it's something I'm noticing more and more as just more and more people join different communities. And I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but it's, it's definitely on my radar as something that, and something my team talks about, like, how can we create resources or how do we update our onboarding or whatever it is for our members so that this is more clear? Yeah. I think there's two things to bear in mind here that are very important in the context of this is one is that the people that take the time to read the guidelines aren't the people that will break them. It's so annoying. <laughs> if you are that kind of person that reads the guidelines, you're fine. You're a good person. You know, you're, you're good. Yeah. You know, that's you're, like you're if fine. you are concerned, if you ask yourself, am I a narcissist? I hope not. You're not. A narcissist will never ask themselves that. <laughs> and so I bear that in mind. Like people change the guidelines and wonder why it hasn't changed the behavior. But if I honestly think about all the apps and tools I use in communities I've joined, I don't think I've read the guidelines of any of those sites. You're saying a lot about what kind of community member you are. Right? <laughs> you know, I, there's there's only one place where I do any trolling whatsoever. But oh, oh for the after show. Um, I think the, the other thing to bear... <laughs> we can talk about it later if you like. Um, <laughs> the other thing I think to bear in mind is like with any group of people, not everyone is going to behave, you know, or not everyone is going to behave the way based upon your experience and culture, you expect them to behave. In the building I live in now, you know, I live in like a high-rise building. There must be hundreds of people that live in this building. And one day I went down into the lobby. It's like late January. And I saw five Christmas trees in the lobby that people just ditched because they're like, okay, I guess this is a solution. What you do with a Christmas tree? Like, I'm like, that's not the etiquette here. Like, but some reason they thought it was and not i'm also interested that they all did it on like the same day or one person had five christmas trees in their house but there's so many questions it's also like yeah. if, if you go to the gym most people kind of get the rules and there's also a lot of like unspoken rules with a gym as well about personal space and all those things but people from a different background different situation or vantage point are doing what makes sense to them and they violate that all the time and so and also some people are just they just have characteristics and attributes that are going to be challenging in any social situation. And so beyond 100 members or so, you're going to get two or 3% that are going to be problematic. And it has nothing to do with the guidelines. It just has something to do with just the way it is. So I'd bear those two things in mind. That said, the rest of them, that's the group you can work with. The people you'd be like, hey, this is a situation that happened. I want your input and what's the best way to resolve this situation so you have some input so you're bought into it then let's try and agree on a solution together. If not, I'm happy to make a decision on that. But like, let's get to a place where we've had that debate and everyone feels heard at least. I think that's the way of going about it. It's not going to resolve every issue, but making people just feel heard, I think that's like a critical thing. Oh, totally. I remember my family lived in China for a few years and the, oh, wow. you know, it's just, it's vastly different. And this was the 90s. So, you know, this was <laughs> pre-blog. This was a long time ago. And you know, the cultural differences and of social norms and, and social etiquette are very different. And it was going into that situation and being like, wow, personal space is not a thing here, but it's totally normal, you know, for them. So it's like, it's a me problem, not a, not a they problem. Like I'm, I'm putting myself in their culture. So I need to adapt. And if as community builders, I mean, if, if the, uh, and it's part of the job, right? Like having the conversations, talking to people, walking it through. And sometimes they're very, I mean, I kind of recently had a situation like this and it was very uncomfortable and, and, but I, it, it had to be done. And, you know, the person actually chose to leave because they decided this just wasn't the right fit. And I'm 
I agree with them. I'm glad they came to that conclusion for for their benefit. I mean, if they were able to stay and stick within like what the like boundaries of what our community is, that would have been great, but they didn't want to do that. And so they opted to leave. It was a very peaceful end to a kind of stressful situation. And I think they found a better fit, right? But that's part of being a community manager is having those conversations. And again, if they would have wanted to stay, I would have worked with them, but they just they decided it wasn't like the best fit, which I was like, great, let's find you a good fit. Because ultimately, that's what we care about, right? It's like, we want you to find the right community for you. And it, it wasn't the right community for them. And um, it just, it happens. I think one of the challenging things culturally that I see is humor and how it's interpreted very differently. And this is also a very interesting debate between Americans, Australians, Brits, European. I mean, I'm lumping all of Europe into that, but like <laughs> Europeans and like, even really small things that are funny in one culture are very, very offensive in another. You know, like when you see it, I'm probably guilty of when this. you see a discussion and someone says, "Oh, fuck off," that can be interpreted in that could be like, "Oh, fuck off," you know, or it could be, you know, they see. I'm not going to repeat it over and again in your podcast, but like, but like, no one has the tone or the context or any of those kind of things, so they're just reading it however their culture tells them to interpret that. And they can go from zero to a hundred really fast based upon how they interpret comments like that. And I think humor is, is is a challenge. You know, like you don't want to ban people being funny, but no one, you know, thinks that they're not funny. Oh, I guess some people do, but like it's like these rules in in communities where I had this debate a while ago where someone says the only rule that you need in a community is don't be an asshole. And I'm like. Well, that's ridiculous because no one thinks that they're being an asshole. You know? <laughs> no one's like, that's me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people think that they're being funny. They think that they're responding to provocation. They think that they are answering back. They think that they're being irrelevant. They think that they're irrelevant. They think that they're being like the person who says it like it is. You know, like everyone has a reason. And so you have to start defining these things in a little bit more detail and trying to understand the tone and the context and all these kind of things. And I think it's interesting this debate is so much about moderation because I think moderation is a challenge because setting the rules and enforcing them are very different things. You know, like having the rules is one thing, interpreting how they apply to very unique situations that are very challenging is another thing entirely. And I think, yeah, culturally there's so many challenges. It's true. Yeah. And as like, you know, global communities, again, I love them, but it does create an extra set of, I mean, time zones. <laughs> time zones are the bane of my existence, but, uh, and trying to create, you know, live programming that's, that works for many, but yeah, it's a great point. And I've definitely seen many uh, jokes go awry or they don't land the way they're intended. And, and it, then it creates a whole rift and it, it escalates. And so the best thing is to be without airing everyone's dirty laundry. Of course, you want to, you want to take things private for the sake of people, but you also want to be fairly transparent about like, hey, I'm removing this post, everyone, and this is why, or hey, I think this conversation, you know, like making a post be like, I think this conversation has gotten a little off. I think we all mean well. Let's get back to what we do best, you know, like however. That's a great response. Yeah. And that's that's kind of one of my like go-tos. Fortunately, I don't have to do this much anymore. Our community um, that we run now, it's all professional entrepreneurs. So like the spats and misunderstandings are pretty minimal compared to I mean, I have some amazing stories I will never share on the air, but, um, you know, as I, I could be a, a mediator if I had the energy, 
but yeah, it, I think it's just like re- hearing people, seeing people, like you said, it's all just human. How would you treat it if it was in person? Right. Like similar thing. I'm all over the place. I'm just so excited to talk to you. It's so fun. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> just kind of to wrap up, I'm curious, like, what are you excited about in community right now? Like what's really like your focus or something you're just paying a lot of attention to and excited about happening in the in the community world, if anything? I'm this is gonna be the nerdiest response I can give. I love it. I'm so excited about the data we're getting access to in communities today. Like, if you think about how a town council would, you know, manage services in their community, they do surveys, they do polls, they do research. Most people manage a community often of like equal size, do not, none of that. You know, they kind of play it by ear on what they think and what they feel. And what this often means is that they're only engaging with the top members in their community and doing what they want to do. And so you end up with a community that's just serving the top people in that community. What Phoebe, um, if you don't mind the plug, is doing at the moment is so much more exciting stuff with data in terms of looking at when do people join? How long do they last for? When they leave, why do they leave? What is a specific intervention we can put in place in that? What kind of UX research can we do to improve that community? How do we measure the return on investment of that community in a very statistically valid way? And I think the more we explore this data, and there's great tools like Orbit and Common Room that are coming along, where you can see how your members are engaging inside the community and on social media as well, and how that interacts with each other, the more we can figure out exactly what we need to do to build the right kind of community. How do we keep people engaged and participating? How do we drive more engagement? Like, I think data-driven is a lot more exciting than than the, like Web3. You know, it just, it really is because we're not, we really haven't scratched the surface much here. And once we do, the data we have access to is just infinite, really. Like, it's absolutely infinite. Like, that's where, that's what I, th- I think is going to happen. I think our ability to be data-driven about this is going to be a game changer. I agree completely and could nerd out about this a ton. If Fever B, what are you doing with this? Like you're researching the different tools and whatnot, and then are you creating your own tool? Or are you creating like a like a publication about it? Like what? Where can we follow along the research you're doing? Well, I post a lot of blogs on feverbee.com sharing the latest data that we've collected. But fundamentally, what we're doing isn't using the like most. The analytics you get with most platforms isn't great. You know, they'll tell you if more people are engaging or not, but they don't give you the level of depth of insights you need to have different segments and see and and track them over time and see exactly what each segment needs and how to target them automatically. That's where we are, I think, doing our best work. I think we pull data from the API directly, so we don't go through the analytics. We get exactly all the data we need. We unpack that, and then we start figuring out exactly what kinds of behaviors lead to people engaging more. So if you took a a sample of members, you see what discussions they engage in, what activities they participated in, compare that to the people who didn't stick around for a long time, you know exactly what to guide the next member to. So when we have like case studies and you can find them on on our site where we've tripled level of engagement or retention, that's how we do it. Not by the guesswork or the intuition of the digital dark ages from before, by having this enlightened data-driven approach where we can really get all the data we need in one place, analyze it in statistically valid methods, and then build out the whole member journey, activities, understanding exactly how to engage each group to achieve the biggest impact. 
So yeah, feverbead.com is probably the best source. Also, if you get my latest book, if you don't mind the plug, Build Your Community, that has all the latest insights and data and all those kind of things that we've collected for 10 years. Build your community. Got you. Yeah, I know. I noticed you have a couple books I haven't read, so now I gotta. Now I gotta keep going. <laughs> Add to the collection. I have way too much time in my hands, I guess. I, I, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Good for you. Okay, final question before we go into the rapid fire, the best questions of all. But I'm curious, and this is a very loaded question, so I acknowledge that. But if you like, what do you think? <laughs> as I'm asking this, I already know you're gonna be like, "That I can't answer this." Do you think there's like a number one metric? to rule them all in community? Like if people could only choose one metric to look at, whether it's like active in the last 30 days or what do you think is, if someone's just getting started with metrics and is like, I'm so overwhelmed, what would you recommend they look at? So typically for like a big brand, you know, there's all sorts of like complex methods of measuring ROI. But I think most people listening to this, the people that run maybe smaller communities or, you know, not like the Microsofts or Apples of this world, I think just looking at the number of people that are visiting each day, I mean, it's not perfect, but it gives you a good insight in when or where people are getting value from that community. I think if you have to add one more metric, because I think two is good, is a basic community satisfaction survey. You know, on a score of one to five or zero to five, how satisfied are you with your community experience? If you do a poll of that twice a year or once a year, I'll give you a pretty good idea of how you're doing. Like if you can improve the satisfaction people have with that community, that's the easiest thing to do. If you want to go more advanced than that, then there's a lot of really interesting data and techniques that you know you can find on my site. But I think just the satisfaction and the level of engagement, those are two pretty good metrics to track. I like that. And I agree. Community metrics, if they could only pull themselves. You know, just running a poll isn't difficult. You know, you can even do it externally and just just put a link in the community. If you have no budget, there's like external tools. Even Google can let you just run a simple form. A Google form. Yeah, and you link to that. I mean, it's not ideal, but like it'll give you good data to work with. There's no shame in that. So it can be quite simple to get this kind of data. Yeah, yeah. I love a poll. I would challenge everybody listening, you know, whether Google Forms, SurveyMonkey, I think people still use. Pulsify is a something that works well with, I know it works well with Circle. I think it might work well with Mighty Networks too. There's a ton of different tools. Typeform, we use a lot. So everybody, homework. <laughs> Let's all go Polar. Let's all go Polar communities. A little satisfaction survey. Okay, I've taken up a ton of your time. Let's go into rapid fire. I will try not to ask follow-up questions and thus eliminate the point of rapid fire, although I will want to. Richard Millington, when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? First, I wanted to be a scientist. Then I wanted to work at SeaWorld. And then I wanted to be a journalist. Ooh. Okay. I lied. Follow question. <laughs> did you want to be a dolphin trainer at SeaWorld? No. I was at SeaWorld once and I there's this guy, like I, I can't remember how old I was, like seven or eight. And there's a guy whose job it was to like feed the sharks. And I, I just oh. wanted that job. And so my parents are like really kind. So I went up to him as he's doing his job, like over the fence or whatever. And I was like, um, excuse me, excuse me. How, how do you feed the sharks? How do you get this job? And he says, walk straight ahead, like into the shark tank, I think. Into the tank. <laughs> yeah, which is a really harsh thing to say. Like how cynical can you be in this world to tell someone that? Like, Wow. Jaded. Yeah. Yeah. So I chose against that career. Yeah. <laughs> Upon reflection. Well, 
you may answer this in, a, in an upcoming question about bucket list. But um, first, how do you define community? Yeah, oh, man, people get so caught up in that in that debate. I say it's a group of people who engage with each other around a common topic online. You know, you can get really complex about relationships and common shared purpose and all those kind of things. But I think the deeper you go there, the more you exclude a lot of the communities I engage with and are my clients. So I take a very broad definition. Other people are different, like Carrie Melissa Jones, who you should look up, has a fantastic book. She has got like a more narrow definition about the true purpose of community. But it's more about like, what end of that continuum you think you want to be on? It is the hardest, easiest question I ask, but you did great. Okay. Whether or not you have an actual bucket list, pretend you do. What is something you would consider bucket list that you have achieved in your life? Oh, man. I remember I wrote, I made a list when I was 21 of the list of things I wanted to do. Oh. So I wanted to like start a business. I wanted to like write a book. Check, check. Check, check. I wanted to stay in a water bungalow. So I did that. Or when I got married on the honeymoon, I recommend it, by the way. It's amazing. It looks amazing. I'm trying to think what else is left. Um, I did most of the things I wanted to do, but now it's going to be a, this is, is it going to be the answer you want? Now, if I make a list, it's more like not things I want to do or have. It's more like the mindset I want to be. You know, it's more about happiness, satisfaction, having a co-supported group of friends. Like, it's all about that happiness answer. If I had to try to think of one thing on the bucket list I still really want to do. Honestly, I want to have an amazing apartment in London. You know, like London is a really expensive city and where I live now is fantastic. But there's one thing I want this like, overview of london i want like the penthouse apartment i don't know if i'll ever have the resources to do that but it's on the list you never know um oh also like at one point i wanted to travel around the world and you know i spent a year like do doing that as well so there aren't really that many things left i've been very lucky uh, honestly okay very important question now have you fed sharks no i've been trying to avoid that every time i swim now that's been like my overriding concern haven't like dropped some chum in the water from the water bungalow and uh... no, you know what? There was this place like I think it was like Typhoon Lagoon in Orlando uh, where you can swim with sharks, and that was like the closest I got. Yeah, I've never had that experience of feeding sharks. That is a situation where you don't want to feed them when you're swimming with them. You don't want to be the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the lawsuit on that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Like they let you swim with sharks and then you get eaten by sharks. And What could possibly go wrong? We forgot to feed them. That would be an interesting case. Right. Well, you answered my follow-up question, which is something on your bucket list that you have yet to do, but want to obviously feed sharks, but also the penthouse in London, which I hope you do it. It's a very materialistic answer. I'm aware of that. That's okay, because you also had all the like happiness and fulfillment. So. We'll take it. We'll take it. What's yours? I have to ask. What's yours? Which one? The one, I, something I want to do? Like, yeah, something you want to do. I really want to witness the Aurora Borealis or the Northern Lights, like in person, which is probably like silly to you because of where you live, you're, you have closer access, you're much higher in the hemisphere. But we went to Scotland a few years ago and we're up in the highlands. And I was like, yes, it's going to happen. Like we're, we're close. It's like, and then I remembered that it never really gets dark in the summer in Scotland. It was like 10 PM and light out. And I was like, so I need to go to sleep. <laughs> Can I share a secret about this? And I don't know how many people know, know this. So I did this in Norway 
two years ago. We went way up to uh, Tromso in the north, amazing place. And they took us out at like midnight, you know, two hours outside of the city. So we get it. And they take us out to a coach and then we get outside and we look at the sky and we wait for it to happen. And after like half an hour, I was like, oh, okay, I guess it's not going to happen tonight because, you know. And then the tour guide was like, oh, it's really good tonight. And I'm like, all we saw like these kind of white wispy clouds. And what I never realized, and I guess I should have done, is that the human eye doesn't capture the same spectrum of light as a camera does. (laughs) So all of the photos that you see of these amazing streaks of light across the sky aren't what you actually see in person. And so I don't want to like dump on on, on your dream, but I would like yeah, too late. be prepared for this. Like it might not be the experience that you're expecting. Good to know. And I've had people say that I'm wrong and they've seen amazing like streaks of light. I think I think they're fibbing. Or like our tour guide lied and, and I'm I'm an idiot. But as best I can tell. I guess it depends like what drugs are legal it where you do it and then that'll determine the level of colors that's the way to do it that's Uh, the way to do it back to the research well i hope to prove you wrong but i do appreciate the heads up because i'm like okay i have to go back but in winter when it's dark all the time (laughs) 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 which is not my jam well thanks for asking that yeah that is that is on my list also to just be like filthy rich and not have to work but i think i'll see the aurora borealis living the dream yeah I mean, if we want a material one, that's my material one. It's just to be grossly loaded Powerball winner and just like spend my time giving money to charity. Okay, I'm interested. I'm interested for this one. What is a book that you love and you wish everybody would read? Oh, man, I had some great answers to this. Or a book you just read that you liked if it's too, if yeah, it's a, it's a big question. Everyone should read. What's the last one that made a major impact? Ah, oh, there's a book, I think it's by Oliver Berkman, 4,000 Hours. I got through that. That was pretty interesting. I thought that was a good book. If you're just looking for a gripping read, like a genuinely gripping, fun read, I think Endurance. It's a book about Shackleton's adventure in trying to reach the uh, South Pole. And it's so absolutely incredible how they survived that it makes everything in your life a lot easier. You know, like whenever I'm having a bad day, there's two things that cheer me up. One is like knowing I'm not in that situation. The other one, if I'm honest, is failed marriage proposals on YouTube. It's harsh, but oh man, it just makes me realize I'm not having that bad a day. That's good to know. I'm going to put that one in my back pocket. I'm going to need to see some failed proposals. Excellent. Um, just looking at the cover of that book is scary. <laughs> so <laughs> I can only imagine. Uh, which book? Endurance? Endurance. Yeah. I do not want to be on that boat. So yeah, those are great. You know, I can throw in another book in there, a weird, a weird one that some people might know already. This is a very weird one. The Courage to Be Disliked. Ooh. The Courage to Be Disliked. It's, yeah, you either love it or you hate it. I think it's a book of Japanese origin. A little bit controversial, but like, it's stuck with me for sure. I like it. That's totally up my weird alley. So I'll just, the, you know, the downside of this podcast and asking people this question is my backlog of, of books I want to read is just pronounced, but winter is coming. So lots of dark nights ahead to read. (laughs) All right. So you live in London, you live in the UK, my favorite city. If you could live anywhere else in the world, where would you want to live? Berlin would be way up there. Reykjavik I really like. Maybe Thailand as well. Like Thailand is, is a place I try to go like once a year. It's like where I go to like relax and scuba diving and all those things. So yeah. Those all sound lovely. One of those options. Yeah. It's a good short list. I like it. 
Okay. And now for real, final question. How do you want to be remembered? That's intense. <laughs> Someone asked me that well, like once before and I couldn't think of anything at all. And I was like, well, I want to live forever. So I don't have, but so I don't want to give that answer because I feel like it's cheating, you know, like I feel like how do I want to be remembered? I like to think that I help people. I don't always know how, but there's like, you know, some nonprofit work that we do that I'm really proud of. There's like, yeah, I like to think that we help people. We had an impact. So I don't have a more specific answer on that, but it'd be nice to just be like, yeah, there are some people we helped. I think it's a great answer. Yeah. Excellent. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you again so much for coming on the show. I'm still just like tickled pink that this is happening. So I really appreciate it. Where, if people want to learn more, they know to go to Feverbee. What about any anywhere else you want to point people? What are your, your social handles to follow you on the interwebs? <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I think my live journal is gone, so um, that won't help. And, and let me just say, actually, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's genuinely being fun and interesting and different, so I really appreciate that. In terms of learning more about, about me, uh, www.feverbee.com. I don't think we still need to put the www, right? I feel like people have got a handle on that part now. The triple dub, yeah, I think. People can figure it out, but you know, they know now HTTP colon backslash backslash. Yeah. So <laughs> feverbee.com, Richard at feverbee.com or Twitter at Rich Millington. Excellent. And it's Rich's blog at feverbee where you still blog in the modern times, correct? And that's where I try to drop the knowledge bombs for sure. Oh yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Have a, a lovely evening in the wonderful city of London. And hey, who knows? Maybe we can convince you to come back. <laughs> I hope so. And that's the episode with Richard Millington. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you found value out of this conversation. It was such a delight to get to actually talk to Richard and talk community. And, you know, it's funny because some of the stuff we were talking about, it reminded me just how much in the last decade plus community has evolved and what it looked like back when I started. I can't, I've like lost track. I just say 10 years, but it's been probably 13. I don't even know. But I think what's really interesting is the evolution of tools and technology specifically for community. We didn't have those 10, 15 years ago. We had Facebook groups. We had, if you worked for, like I did, like a big tech company with lots of money, you had a custom-built platform that either kind of worked or sort of worked, and you were very beholden to product and the product team and always kind of, <laughs> I wouldn't say fighting, but always advocating for improved features, new features, that product was always rolling their eyes, a full rotation in the back of their head, because that was just one of many things they had to keep running. And once the house is built, you can't necessarily move a wall. You know what I mean? Like sometimes the structure that the community was built limited community features. And now we have all these different platforms. Obviously, we use Circle, but these much more plug and play platforms that didn't exist back then that allow a creator, a you know, a community builder who's maybe been in real life and is switching to digital. Like we don't have to do the Facebook group anymore. You can, you certainly can, but you don't have to. And if it's a paid group, don't you dare. Have you learned nothing from me? 
Just kidding. You do what works for you, but I'm not joining your paid community if it's hosted on Facebook. And I'm probably not your target market. So that's also fine, but don't do it. Seriously. No. Kidding aside, I think the conversation with Richard was fun to kind of talk about where community was, where it is now, where might it be going. The other big takeaway I had from talking to Richard was just going back to some really basic principles that are so important. And the thing that we talked about a bit that stuck out to me is the power of the survey. I love a good survey. Actually, my team, we've been talking about how do we create a essentially a survey program in our communities where trying to figure out what's the cadence, what's the, you know, what's the data, the responses are compiled, where are we putting them and what are we looking at or looking for? What's our level of engagement we're expecting? I'd love to do like a more beefy, like annual survey that's longer and takes more time. And we have more of a campaign around to get people to fill it out and participate. So we can kind of see from that member lens, like, are we doing the best we can? Because we have a big, busy community and have gotten feedback that it can be hard to find what you're looking for or just get kind of overwhelmed with where to even look. So how can we leverage what our members think or what their experiences are to figure out solutions? So surveys, I am personally going to be leaning into community surveys a bit more. You'll probably hear me talk about it more. Thank you for indulging me, but also what are you doing? Are you surveying your community on the regular? And what does that look like? I'd love to hear, talk to a couple people recently about this, and it's fun to hear what everyone is doing. So you can hit me up on the Twitter sphere at Jillian Benbow. Uh, you can also hit up at Team SPI, but tag me in it too, so I see it. I don't always see that at Team SPIs. And yeah, I'd love to further the conversation. And with that, have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe. Share with someone who might be interested if you feel so comfortable. And on that, I will see you next Tuesday. Learn more about Richard and all the work he does over at Feverbee. That is feverbee.com. And of course, you can hit Richard up on Twitter and on the socials. He is at Rich Millington. Your lead host for the community experience is me, Jillian Benbow. Our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Our senior producer is David Grabowski. And our editor is Paul Gregoris. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. Theme music by David Grabowski. See you next Tuesday.